and welcome to Mint and Burn, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralized digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Nabin, and we are tuning in remotely from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you expert guests and test frontier ideas. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Thibault Schreppel again, alongside distinguished Professor Jason Potts and Dr. Aaron Lane on the decentralization formula. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thanks, Kelsey. Thanks, Kelsey. Great to be here. Great to have you. And <laughs> Thibault, welcome back to the podcast. I think you're the first guest that we've had on twice, which is, which is quite a feat for our academic analysis and congratulations on your new book. We'd love to hear more about it today. Can you give us a high level introduction? Of course. Um, But before we get started, there are two things I would like to address. First of all, wow. I mean, world number second, as I said on Twitter, I think it should be world number first, but this is just fantastic and and so well-deserved. So really from the bottom of my heart, uh, congratulations on that. Like, thank you, thank um, you very much. That means a lot to us. Um, you know, really we are great. absolutely thrilled ourselves. It's it's a it's a wonderful um, team achievement that we've. And yeah, and the, and so the second thing is less positive because I want to complain already. It's eight a.m. here, <laughs> um, and so I'm going to try my best to you know make sense of uh, of this space. But yeah, this is not in my habit. Um, yeah, I'm delighted to be to be back on the podcast. Um, I think I've been listening to every of your episodes uh, since the, the the very first ones. So uh, it's great to be to be back. And indeed, I do have a new book. Um, I remember at the time uh, when we recorded the first episode, I I knew. I mean, I was writing the book, and we kind of privately discussed that. But now it's public. Um, it's open access, so you know, any, any everyone listening to the podcast can just access the book. If you just uh, Google "blockchain plus antitrust," the decentralization formula, you'll be able to to get it. Uh, you can also buy the paper version, of course. But um, not here to to make some more promotion, but to discuss the content of the book. And I'm delighted and thrilled to be discussing that with you guys. Um, and so. The very basic idea of the book, and this has been a discussion with the with the publisher of the book, uh, because I wanted to have the plus in between blockchain and antitrust in the title. Apparently, this was not good for Google searches, um, but regardless of that, I think this is more important to convey the message of the book, which is that instead of looking at one or the other, depending on your legal training or technical training or preferences, um, the, the subject, the, the main message of the book is that we should be combining the two for two main reasons. The first is that they have the same objective. And the second one is that they complement one another in trying to reach this objective. And so I think this is in the common interest of blockchain and antitrust communities to cooperate. So that's the very basic idea of the book. Um, you know, sometimes I was thinking about that yesterday. People complain that uh, you could actually summarize book in just one sentence or two, and that papers should will be better than books for that reason. And I think it's actually great if you can summarize the points of the book in just one sentence. Hopefully, there is more inside the book than what I just said. But th- this is the basic idea. From what I've read, I think there is. For starters, Aaron, can you just provide our audience who perhaps hasn't had the chance to go back and listen to the previous uh, episode with T-Bolt on a refresher of what is antitrust or maybe in Australian language, 
competition law? Yeah, sure. So, so uh, whether it's uh, antitrust is, is what you would call it um, uh, in in America, I think in, in Europe uh, and Australia, where um, we're more accustomed to speaking about it as, as competition law, um, and, and there's obviously competition policy that goes alongside uh, competition law, but it's it's around um, uh, maintaining really the competitive dynamics of the market process in, um, in, in sort of avoiding a monopoly sort of structure, um, in, in ensuring that, um, that there aren't anti-competitive uh, sort of behaviours, whether it's price fixing, whether it's um, collusion, uh, whether it's anti-competitive um, mergers. Now, a lot of these are, are contested spaces, you know, that there are particular legal tests um, that, and, and those tests are contested. Um, the, the purpose uh, of the, the law um, has been under serious examination, uh, I think, over the last couple of years in, in particular, um, about, you know, is, is the purpose of the law about um, maximizing consumer welfare or is it about some other sort of test? And, and I know um, Thibault in the book um, is, is quite emphatic uh, in, in one particular uh, section on, on what the purpose of antitrust is. And, and I, I think you're right, Thibault, but um, I, I just wanted to put out there for, for readers that, um, that that's the, the general idea, um, how it's achieved, what the legal tests are, what the purpose um, th- those things can be contested from time to time. May I react to that? <laughs> because indeed, I mean, if you've been following what's happening in the space, uh, there is uh, a very important debate those days regarding what should be the end goal of antitrust or competition law. Um, some say that we should be moving from the consumer welfare standard, which is that antitrust should be protecting consumers toward all the goals. And I think, and indeed, chapter five of the book is dedicated to this question because this is very important. But I think that regardless of the the answer you want to give, it doesn't change the nature of antitrust, which is here, in my understanding, to free economic transactions from coercion. And then you may say, we want to do that for the purpose of protecting consumers or workers or total welfare, whatever you want. But the logic is that if economic transactions are... Um, being constrained by power or collusion, you won't be able to achieve any of those goals. And and this is where I think we could find consensus as to what is the purpose of antitrust, or at least at least the means. And and as uh, I- indeed uh, you mentioned, the dynamic of a competitive market. Yeah, and so the the, the reason that we care about about this and and have uh, it enforced through legal means is, is because we, we want competition. We, 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 we want competition to drive innovation. We want competition to drive uh, consumer satisfaction. We want new products and new services being uh, developed. We want that competitive pressure. Um, and it's, it's also a way of, of getting more kind of knowledge into the system as well. Um, and, and this was the, the Hayekian idea of, of, of competition as, uh, as sort of discovery. So um, there's, there's various uh, uh, sort of benefits to that. And, and, and I, I agree, Thibaut, that it, it doesn't really matter whether your end goal is maximizing consumer welfare or if it is, um, let's say, 
uh, more of a, a political end goal in um, not having, you know, big corporations having big political sway. Um, I agree with you. I think at the end of the day, um, and this is the point that you're making, the, the tools um, from the antitrust toolkit um, and the world that um, blockchain is developing are, are kind of tending towards the, the same direction or at least have the potential to tend to that direction. So this is what you call the, the decentralization formula, this, this formula of blockchain plus literal plus antitrust uh, on that title there. So decentralization of what or why, or why do you think blockchain has to be part of that formula as well as uh, just legal mechanisms? Sure. Uh, you know, it's funny because I just started a digital book tour and already um, I was introduced quite a few times as the author of the book Blockchain and Antitrust, because this is very much, again, in the, you know, the legal training and the way we look at law and technology. And by the way, we never say technology and law, which is also very interesting. But to come back to the title, um, I called it indeed the decentralization formula, because it seems to me that if you are uh, trying to achieve decentralization and then and here and I, and I dedicate chapter four of the book to what is decentralization, uh, because there are many possible definitions. But the one that I use uh, throughout the book is that uh, to be decentralized is when a system um, lets its subjects or agents determine their own competences. So if you are free to act the way you want, then we could say that the system is decentralized. And of course, if, if the opposite is true, and if someone is telling you exactly how to behave, then this is not decentralized at all. This is the, 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 the actual definition of centralization. And what I explain is that this concept of decentralization should be actually studied over time. Uh, it's not enough to just take a picture of a market or an ecosystem and to say, or a technology and to say this is decentralized or centralized um, because it changes. It is very, very much dynamic. So we, we need to be able to capture the movie of decentralization. And it is also multi-level, meaning that it's not enough to just have a look at one layer let's say, the mining power of a blockchain and to say, look, there are mining farms owning 40% of, of a blockchain. Therefore, this blockchain is not decentralized. I think um, it, it, it means that this particular layer is not <clears throat> fully decentralized, uh, but it doesn't mean that this will impact necessarily all the layers such as the core developers or it could be the, the number of apps. It could be the network effects at the user level, etc. And so what I try to, to explain in the book is that it's very important to study when we study the decentralization of one layer, if that impacts all the layers. And sometimes the answer is positive, sometimes it is not. And so what I try to explain is that because of what we discussed already, antitrust or competition policies leaning toward the competitive process, which implies decentralization, and because the objective of blockchain is also the same, um, they actually should uh, work together instead of doing what we've been always doing for almost 4,000 years, which is to just create a confrontation and, as lawyers, apply the law without trying to preserve the technology. Um, I think we, we surely can do it this way, 
But in my view, this would be a mistake because eventually it will deprive antitrust regulators from a great ally named uh, blockchain. I'm sure we have time uh, later on to discuss the reason why they are complements to, to one another. Um, but th this is the definition that I've that I've chosen for decentralization. And indeed, that is the reason why it is called the formula, uh, because you have to, you know, add one to the other. Yeah, that's that's really clear to me. I, I, um, I like that approach. And I, I think what um, one of the sort of early chapters in your book, chapter three, I believe, Blockchain and Darwin, that I, I particularly liked, um, was one that where you sort of really developed this, this sort of dynamic argument about how what, what we've actually got here is this ongoing evolution of technology and technology competition um, that is taking place not just at the level of firms. And, 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 and I think, this, as you point out, this notion of, you know, firms big or small and, and then the role of regulators is to try and make the big firms smaller in the, in the sort of standard sort of adversarial setting. Um, but when we re reframe this as sort of ongoing evolutionary competition, um, it's, it, it starts to look very different. And this is, this is so um, a thing that sort of leaps out at us is, is just how fast technological change is occurring in the blockchain space. We're on, you know, one, two, three, four generations of, of blockchains already. But the other thing that's, that I've always found striking and, and interesting and, and just why this space is different is it's not just technology, it's not just competition between firms that are, you know, producing things and selling stuff to consumers and, you know, regulators are standing around trying to protect the consumers. We've got competition all the way down. We've got competition at the infrastructural level. And that's sort of how I was understanding a lot of the arguments that you're making was this, this notion that it's, it's not just um, firms in markets and then regulators standing around protecting, protecting consumers, but this just huge sort of technological dynamic that is going all the way down um, such that we've got, you know, blockchains actually providing economic infrastructure indexes and exchanges and, um, you know, transport layers and security layers and all of that sort of, all of those sorts of things that are continuously experiencing evolution. So, I mean, is, is, I mean that, am I right? Is, is, is that the argument that you're, that you're making there? Sure. Yes, it is. Um, and so, you know, when trying to capture the movie, uh, which is, of course, very complex, because if we knew exactly how innovation will plays out, I mean, you know, uh, we will live in a different world. And so this is one of the biggest challenge we are we are facing. But it, it seems clear to me, and this is actually my, my kind of framework, that there are three different stages that we could actually distinguish from, from each other. The first, actually, you wrote about it. And when I read your book very recently, the Innovation Commons, it, this made perfect sense to me that people eventually come together without an ID for a clear product or service. And out of that, something will emerge without necessarily commercial feeders. It might be the case or not. Uh, so this is stage one. Then stage two is what Brian Archer wrote about, which is the combination of existing technologies, uh, which is, of course, exactly how blockchain appears. As we know, it was a combination of different techniques for encryption and, and, and vice versa. And actually, Satoshi Nakamoto is quoting quite a few of those technologies in the Bitcoin white paper. And then after that, after the, the combination of existing technology, you do have a new species out there. And then you follow a Darwinian process of evolution. And here, I think it's very important to keep in mind that if you do not have uh, elements of differentiation, from all the species, then you disappear because it means you cannot use certain features 
in a certain environment uh, to your best advantage and, and try to survive. And I wanted indeed to discuss that early on in the book to make it clear that when addressing the mutual aggressions, so when addressing blockchain infringing antitrust, uh, and of course we should do so, but we should do it in my view in a way to preserve those elements of differentiation. Otherwise, if you re-centralize blockchain, you put it closer to centralized firms and blockchain disappear. So this is how I try to capture the movie of blockchain, um, keeping in mind that indeed we are talking about an infrastructure that can be used to build products and services on top of that. And this is why it, it plays out again in the best interest of antitrust regulators, uh, because it means that where they cannot detect infringement, where they are mutually in friendly jurisdiction, et cetera, et cetera, then potentially the fact that services and products are built on top of a decentralized infrastructure may benefit them because you will see less anti-competitive practices and, and uh, uh, value creation being shared amongst the users instead of being captured by just a few. So this, this is the basic idea uh, of this chapter. And again, this relates to part to title one of the book in which I explain, okay, blockchain and antitrust, go, they go in the same direction. Part two is about the mutual aggressions when one actually infringes on the other. And part three is about how we should combine the two and create a very concrete program to, to address those pitfalls and drawbacks. Yeah, nice. Um, so in the sort of Schumpeterian community that I, I, I sometimes um, run with, they sort of have a saying that sort of the most effective competition policy is innovation policy. And that's sort of getting at this idea that so long as you've got continuous innovation and new technologies, that's throwing up these, these sort of new varieties that, that sort of means that any, um, you know, the opportunity for any exploitation of firms to actually take place is, 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 is just you know, effectively going to be competed or innovated away, as, as it were, rather than needing regulation. Which interestingly has been, I guess, historically uh, an argument kind of um, saying that monopolies don't matter that much, at least um, in, in, a, in a static sense, as, the, as long as you've got, um, you know, an innovation motivation there, um, that, that over time, um, you know, that, that will kind of correct, uh, you know, the, the concentration element that might be there. Um, whereas uh, I, I think what what's interesting um, about the arguments here is, is that um, is, is that's tending towards uh, a, a decentralization structure. It, it's it's not necessarily um, e even where you might have one um, say base layer, you know, sort of layer one um, blockchain is is you know perhaps uh, hugely concentrated. I think we see that at the moment. Um, it's it's not necessarily uh, the case where we're seeing that at the uh, at, at other layers. Um, so I, I think that's that's kind of a fascinating thing here that that, that we're seeing. Um, that even if you have that concentration around a single um, blockchain, that inherently uh, the the blockchain can be um, decentralized, distributed. Um, where that's that wouldn't be the the case throughout throughout history, and and I mean of course it would depend on the nature of the blockchain being dominant, whatever that means. 
Uh, it might be that tomorrow a new blockchain will emerge in which the core developers will be able to impose, you know, core updates and, and this kind of stuff. Uh, but as far as I know, this is not the case for Bitcoin, Ethereum, Stellar, EOS, and the others. And so indeed, the fact that everyone chooses to use kind of the same blockchains, at least the same layer once, is not problematic in and of itself because of the structure and the governance, meaning that you can still build products on top of those and ensure decentralization. So this this is something very important, which again is common to antitrust, which is that centralized outcomes are okay. And in fact, great. I mean, if a layer one is more uh, sophisticated and advanced than others, then people should be using it. Um, but what is not okay is that if is is when the process is not being uh, decentralized and when it's not possible to even compete and and to contest market shares. Uh, and so this is why again we come back to this idea of of the means of competition and the process and the dynamism. And indeed, as you mentioned, I mean, uh, we often hear from antitrust agencies that competition drives innovation, which is true, but we less often hear that innovation drives competition, which is potentially even more, even more so. Uh, and and I think this is something to keep in mind, especially when it comes to this new emerging ecosystem. Um, because when we try to address, you know, market power issues, the Digital Markets Act and all the regulations are wonderful, <laughs> but potentially you may also want to ensure that there are new alternatives coming out there on the market. And and I realize this is complex because antitrust agencies and even more so private litigations are about one case at the time. And it's really hard to keep the big picture in mind. And yet it might be necessary Otherwise, we may end up in a very difficult situation. And to be very concrete, there is one case in the US in which a Bitcoin, uh, a, a blockchain here, the Bitcoin ABC blockchain was forked. And some argued that this was anti-competitive. This was a collusion and against the Sherman Act. Um, luckily, the court said that this wasn't the case. But it could have been that the court would have said, yes, this was anti-competitive. And you know what? All forks are anti-competitive, as a matter of fact. And this would have been a big drawback for the blockchain ecosystem because forks are necessary. And again, this is why I think we have to have the big picture in mind, which is the reason why I wanted to publish this book before we have, you know, hundreds of cases coming out there. Um, but this won't be easy, of course. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, eventually seeing it being cited by the, the US Supreme Court in, in something, Thibaut. <laughs> yeah, that'll that'll be a that that'll be a nice achievement. Um, but but I got to say, I mean, I, I think um, antitrust agencies have looked upon um, some proposals um, in the blockchain space with great skepticism. Um, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of the the Facebook um, uh, kind of DM proposal, uh, for instance, which um, it was was almost sort of shut down before it was even launched. Um, and I, I know you make comment about that that in the book as well, but there, there seems to be a, a difference in the attitude, um, I guess, around the enforcement if you've got uh, a, a decentralized community that kind of already exists and then, and then something grows out of that versus, I guess, more of a top-down approach that might be utilizing the, the technology. And, I mean, on that... <laughs> And here we enter the space of policy, which, which of course, if, is fascinating. Yeah. But what we see is that uh, we, I mean, 
we already see that more or less, but it's going to be, I think, increasingly important. We see capture uh, and increasingly you're going to see centralized firms arguing that blockchain should be um, should be um, turned down or, you know, potentially potentially slow down because it is bad for whatever they want to 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 argue for and therefore we're going to see centralized firm trying to capture the regulator against blockchain and something that we less often discuss is how public institution may also capture the regulation for themselves which is very clear in the case of dm first time to the best of my knowledge that the european commission is opening in in, in investigations against a product that does not yet exist which is saying something very important despite all of the computational issues with DM. Um, and in that case, I mean, of course, the blockchain community was happy because Facebook is not their best friends for most of them. Uh, but when we see China saying that Bitcoin is illegal and soon some other countries, you know, trying to turn down Bitcoin and Ethereum, it's going to be a different story. And therefore, I think we should be aware of the risk of regulatory capture and, and potentially, and this is probably a role for us, the academic community, uh, be uh, very vocal when this happens and, and publish papers and potentially create a database with, you know, all the regulations trying to, to capture the space against blockchain. Yeah, I, I think it's a great point. Um, and I think a, an, another um, complication into the mix is, is this idea of um, who do we actually uh, target? So if we look at sort of antitrust tools um, and th this is the, I guess this is the blockchain and antitrust, and then we'll get to the, the, the how they might um, tend in the same direction. But where there's a tension, um, and, and, and you speak about this in the book, where, where, where there's a tension uh, about um, activity in a particular sort of blockchain ecosystem and applying the tools of antitrust to that, um, th there's a target problem. Um, I know... You have um, in, in in a previous paper proposed this idea of the kind of the blockchain nucleus, um, but uh, you, you've dedicated some space to talking about you know the, the, this idea of a legal fiction. So do, do, do you want to just sort of walk us through your argument on that one? Sure. Um, indeed, there are many tensions. The first is a question of target uh, targeting. Because antitrust is built around this idea of firms in the sense of Ronald Coase. So in a sense, you know, a vertical uh, organization with the power of command and control, the order will trickle down from the top, the CEOs, shareholders, and the employees will just execute all that. And this is how we capture what is a firm for the purpose of antitrust. So all over the world, the legal forms does not really matter. So you may have two separate firms. But if one controls the others because uh, one owns 100% of the shares of the others or because they have the same CEOs and the same shareholders, et cetera, et cetera, uh, then they are deemed to be the same firm for the purpose of antitrust, which, again, is very much based on this idea of verticality. And this is how we apply antitrust. We apply, we apply those rules to those vertical entities. And of course, as we know, uh, things are different when it comes to blockchains because they are horizontal by nature. It doesn't mean that there is no power or no influence of users toward other participants, uh, but you do not see such a clear power of command and control. And so for that reason, I think it's going to become increasingly hard to apply antitrust to those blockchains because where do you go 
uh, who should be the legal fiction behind it in, you know, liable for the practices. I think we don't have answers if we just use the firm as an analogy and try to capture blockchain that way. So what I try to, when I propose in the book is that we should indeed try to capture what I call the nucleus of a blockchain, which relates to a group of participants, including the core developers, the miners, the actual users, um, it could be the foundations or all the players in the space who coming together are influencing the blockchain to a great degree. And I think they could be liable liable for antitrust violations because they do have together a power to stop transactions or influence transactions and, and move the blockchain in a certain direction. So this, I believe, will be a, a very a central issue when it comes to applying antitrust at the blockchain level instead of just trying to apply antitrust to a particular miner in the space or a particular user, because that, of course, is possible. Mm-hmm. So that's tension number one. And then, of course, what I discuss, and those are the chapters 8 to, to, to 11, is that you could use blockchain for two things. First, to infringe antitrust in the outside world. So, you know, I could set up smart contracts to increase the prices of my products in the supermarket or wherever. And possibility number two is that you see antitrust infringements within the blockchain ecosystem. Uh, You know, miners and core developers coming together and agreeing on changing the rules and raising the fees, et cetera, et cetera. And I think antitrust agencies should be aware of that. What I can tell you already is that a few years ago, I was, you know, going around places saying to the people, the first cases we're going to see in the space are going to be about blockchain impacting the real space because it's easier to conceive. Uh, and in fact, I was wrong. The first cases we have, especially in the US, are about uh, participants um, infringing antitrust within the blockchain ecosystem. And and apparently it did not scare courts and, and agencies to, to go after those practices. So I'm very curious to see how all that will evolve. Um, but so far, this is what we have. That's fascinating. I, thank you for that. So um, can I just dig, um, dig in a little bit more to this notion of, a, of, of the sort of blockchain nucleus as a, as a legal fiction? So this is, this is a, you're conceptualizing this um, as an abstract idea that, that um, antitrust competition policy um, regulators and would would target or, or would 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 seek to try and measure their effect and and, and base um, and base sort of judgment or efforts to enforce policy based around that. So, how would we identify those those nucleuses? I mean, that's is it um, is that actually sort of specific liability on actual people, or is it sort of more of an abstract um, identification of a of a target or a problem? What's the? I'm just sort of struggling with just how concrete that idea is in terms of, um, in terms of what that nucleus actually is referring to. Sure, um, and I mean, in, so here, so the reason why I think this is an important subject is is that the the, the ability to apply antitrust to a legal fiction is helpful in two regards. The first is to be able to target a group of participants who might be liable, which is necessary to define market power, for instance, or in the case of merger control, so this will be necessary. And the second one is actually to be able to apply antitrust and to study the effect of practices. Uh, As we know, one cannot collude with itself. 
meaning that if you see collusions within the same legal fiction, then it is not a collusion at all. It is just a legal fiction behaving in a certain way, in a consistent way. And so for that reason, it is very important for us, antitrust lawyers, to be able to define legal fictions. And so th that is why I came up with this idea of the blockchain nucleus. And and so, of course, you will need to to study each and every one of uh, and, 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 and all of all the blockchains out there individually to see where is the blockchain nucleus um, uh, and, and where is is the power in, in that particular blockchain. Uh, I come up in the book with three criteria to actually be able to capture this nucleus. The idea being to, again, see who, who are the users and participants and, and miners and core developers um, coming together to be able to escape the constraints being exercised by the others if they are not co cooperating. So as we know, this is the beauty of blockchain. There is a clear tension between all of those groups of, of participants that the core developers may propose updates but the miners have to actually be able be be willing to change you know the, the software and to implement the update and if the users leave the blockchain after an update then the blockchain has no value so there is a, a tension between between those um, but we see sometimes that depending on the actual design of the blockchain depending on on the norms so the spirit of the blockchain the market forces um, and the law you see that some users are coming together and are, because of that, influencing the blockchain in a certain direction. Um, so again, I detail in the book, and I believe this is chapter seven, uh, all the criteria that we may want to take into consideration, giving some very concrete example. But, and here, let me be very clear. If you do have millions of followers on, on Twitter or social media, you do have a power which I think should be captured somehow when we try to define who is in charge of the blockchain. Again, this is not uh, something similar to what we have in the case of a firm where you could just give an, an order, but nonetheless, this is something to be taken into consideration. If you could change the fees of the blockchain, this is valuable, um, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the things that we should be capturing one way or the other. Otherwise, again, we have no legal fiction. Blockchain is just a totally, you know, um, flat and uh, hard to define group of participants. And then there is no antitrust at all, which is, of course, bad for antitrust lawyers, but also bad for those communities, <laughs> because it means they cannot use antitrust and claim for damages and compensation when they are uh, victims of antitrust practices. And so I want to make that very clear. This is not just me, a professor of law, trying to apply the law at all costs, but this is me trying to also use the legal rules and the rule of law so to protect the blockchain environment. So I'm really interested in what you just said in terms of if you've looked into DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations at all, in terms of the dynamics of power. And I really like that you mentioned some of those um, social elements of influence around you know twitter followers um, as well as some of the arbitration mechanisms going on within them yeah and you know uh, i thought eventually that i would be writing a chapters on DAOs, um and then i decided not to <laughs> because it, it became very obvious that every time i looked at the white paper of a DAO and tried to understand the functioning it has a totally different way uh, of of operating than all the DAOs. So 
I ended up with uh, a scale, um, which is one of the, the graphs that you will see in the book, in which I say, on the one hand, we do have public permissionless blockchains. Those are the most horizontal. This is where the blockchain nucleus is, is, is essential, in my view. On the other end of the spectrum, we do have firms, such as the big tech or any other firm. Here, you do need just the theory of the firm. It's, 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 it's good enough. And in between, you do have private blockchains, permission blockchains, DAOs. Um, and indeed, here, what you should be studying, and I realize this is more complex than just you know looking at a firm from a vertical uh, uh, point of view, because you do need to study every single one of the actors in, in a DAO, for instance, to try to understand where the power lies. Um, but for instance, you see, you know, screening the forums that every time a core developer will propose an update to the core code, this will be adopted. And sometimes you see that every time someone who is not a core developer proposes a update to the core code, this is not being adopted. So this, again, is, is the kind of things and I realize this is very technical in nature, but I think we have no choice but to become a bit technical in antitrust analysis. This is what we need to capture because, again, this is not just enough to try to understand where you know one user can impose things on others. And for DAOs, it depends. I, I give the example of the Hyperledger and the Corda uh, R3 in the book uh, to try to, to give some tools for the, the readers to, to see if, indeed, a particular DAO could be captured under the the theory of granularity in which we study each and 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 every one of the players or not. Yeah, there's, I, I guess that sort of leads into the discussion um, and and one of your other chapters on uh, sort of you know codification and and how does uh, how does regulation and, and 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 blockchain sort of speak to each other? Well, the answer there is is through code. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in the ability to then uh, have an impact on uh, the sort of characteristics that uh, a particular blockchain or, or, or function might have. Um, and you, you've got, you sort of have developed this sort of particular formula um, uh, around um, uh, accuracy, manageability, objectivity, flexibility. Um, when when I was reading through that, I, I couldn't help but thinking, um, isn't this just the sort of structure conduct performance um, kind of paradigm, but updated for uh, you know for, for blockchain? Um, you know, in in the sense that uh, you know if if we can get the the structure of a blockchain right before it's it's sort of deployed then that's going to lead to certain sort of performance outcomes and certain um, uh, then th those performance outcomes are going to lead to certain incentives and, and so on. And there might be feedback loops among those, but is, is, there, a, is there a similarity between those, those you know, for your, your idea and your sort of framework you're putting forward in those sort of previous models? Yes, very much so. But the number one challenge for me here in the space is that it's really hard to know what will be the evolution of a particular blockchain according to a particular design. And so this is why we have to be careful um, when it comes to interfering with the actual blockchain design. I think it might be necessary, um, uh, but however, it, it might be that instead of just trying to 
to change ex ante the design of all blockchain and to say, you know what, tomorrow's all blockchain is going to have to be public and permissionless, otherwise it's not it's not working. Uh, this is, by the way, what the US wanted to do eventually in the infrastructure bill in which they wanted to, to, to put certain consensus uh, over the others. Um, and, yeah. and where it's dangerous is that we have no idea on the long run if those are the best designs. Um, and so for that reason, what I try indeed to, what I explain in the book is that we may want to have the ability to apply the law ex post, meaning after a practice has been implemented. And that is necessary. This is the entry door that we may need. Uh, and I explore different ways of doing so. It may be that the regulator will be able to impose a particular decision. It might be that the regulator would just be able to uh, propose a vote to the actual blockchain community. So we see there is uh, actually different possibilities and degrees of coercion here in the space. Uh, but if we do not discuss that, then we could talk antitrust all we want. We won't simply be able to apply it. And the same is true for you know IP and data privacy and so on. Right. Uh, and, and that, I believe, will be a challenge for those communities because if antitrust regulators cannot apply antitrust, they're not just going to say, oh, too bad for us, I guess, game over. They will find another way with extreme measures to apply antitrust and to re-centralize blockchains, which is not what we want. So again, I think this is why we have to have this dialogue uh, today and not wait for a few years to to discuss those ma those topics. And there's, there's a really great link here um, that I just want to make explicit for listeners out there is is there's a link between what you're saying here about uh, the the function of regulatory agencies and perhaps you know sort of looking backwards to to see what's happened um, and your other idea of of computational antitrust and um, you know re regulators using uh, kind of new tools um, to really analyze, um, you know, w whether it's mergers or, or whether it's other sort of um, co conduct uh, using those sort of um, computational tools um, in, in that analysis. So, so I do realize that this is indeed a long shot to say the least. I'm not sure we're going to see antitrust regulators being decentralized anytime soon, although it will be great to some degree, if, if, if you know, only for a matter of uh, philosophy, I think it will be much easier for the blockchain communities to accept and, and endorse and facilitate legal enforcement if legal enforcement was, was not simply applied by centralized institutions, uh, but, but also to improve the way by which we apply antitrust and design antitrust policies, we could indeed use blockchain. And I explore how in, in chapter 14, um, how we could use blockchain to actually decentralize those regulators to be able to better uh, associate blockchain design and antitrust enforcement. So I go through what is a prediction market and how we could be implementing Furtiki systems using blockchain within antitrust agencies. And if there are enforcers listening to us, don't be scared. I'm not here to argue that you will lose all the power and that just the people will enforce antitrust. Uh, but you, you could actually start with a, you know, a lower degree of key in which you will have a voting system with a reputation token, for instance, within your agency secretly. No one will know about it, but just try it and see if it works. And, uh, and I suspect it might, might work, actually. Uh, so indeed, this relates to this idea of computational antitrust, which is instead of just trying to 
combat the technology, you may also want to use it to improve the processes and, and the analysis. Yeah, I'd love to see that. That would be amazing. It's such, a, such, a, such an amazing idea. Um, one of the things I was, I was wondering about was, what does this look like at a global scale? Like, so, I mean, just almost by definition, all um, economic policy and regulation takes place at the level of the nation state or, 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 or the EU or, you know, at the sort of supranational level. Whereas, I mean, the, one of the striking things about blockchains as a technology is that they exist on the internet. Now, you know, obviously, servers exist in actual places, and there's ways to connect them to actual countries. But um, what's your sort of sense of, of of what what this looks like from a global perspective, and 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 also the ability of of um, you know blockchain companies or protocols or individuals just to escape and, and run to other jurisdictions? So this is where I am not not so optimist about the future uh, because I, I think we may see a race to the bottom um, in which you will see s certain enforcers regulating blockchain in a certain way and I fear that this may have no effect at all this is possibility number one um, or which will be bad news for, for the rule of law or it will have the effect of impacting the entire blockchain all over the world because indeed again because of the absence of a clear power of command and control, no one can actually say, we're going to design a version of the Ethereum for Europe, a version for the US and, then Europe, and a version for China. And tomorrow, those three different versions will be out there and available to the people. Uh, no one can actually take such decision. And for that reason, I fear that if there are changes in the actual design of a blockchain, this will apply all over the world. And this may create an incentive to be first in the space and to design a blockchain according to certain values somewhere in the world. Um, and, and again, I think this, this is to be resisted. I'm not sure exactly how to do that, um, but, but I'm afraid that what has been labeled the Brussels effect, the idea that in Brussels or in Europe regulate first, and this impacts the entire world, which is very clear for the GDPR, for instance, may actually uh, impact the entire ecosystem here again, talking about the layer one of a blockchain. So what I propose is that an idea will be to start with the layer two or with the app layer of blockchains, where it is actually much easier for someone behind the scene to implement different versions um, and potentially not, not to impact the entire world at once, uh, which is not what we want in the space. It, it is way too soon for any such regulation, in my opinion. I just want to read a quote from the book before kind of a round of final comments and thanks to Aaron for capturing this. Um, but in some, the key, the key idea um, is this. So it says, I hope to have convinced readers that antitrust law and blockchain contribute to similar, if not identical objectives, i.e. preserving agents' ability to act freely in the market, which entails the decentralization of decision-making processes. For that reason, one might expect that both communities would work hand-in-hand -hand to achieve decentralization. Final comments? You want me to react? I think this is beautifully written. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, very more seriously, um, you know, I think if you hear the world, 
the word cooperation or collaboration, th this sounds wonderful. And I suspect that most people would say, yes, I'm, I'm all for it. Let's do it. But when in practice is going to come the time for actually implementing cooperation, we're going to see some tensions. Um, to be very concrete, if a blockchain is public and permissionless, it means that information is out there, publicly available, which might sometimes be helpful for agents to collude outside of the blockchain. And yet I think we should resist the temptation of saying that public permissionless blockchain are illegal or tools for anti-competitive behaviors in and of itself. Um, I explained that when it comes to forks, although you could say, and I could uh, theoretically con conceptualize how we could say that all forks are in, in, indeed collusions. After all, it is just a bunch of users coming together and agreeing on forking a blockchain, dividing the value of the original blockchain so that it can capture some of that value which sounds like the definition of a collusion. And yet, I believe that forks are essential to the ecosystem and therefore not to be seen by default as anti-competitive behaviors. So it, it means that we need to direct enforcement in a certain way. Uh, it also means that we should potentially direct enforcement toward protecting blockchain when, for instance, big tech is abusing its market power uh, toward the blockchain ecosystem to uh, hamper uh, advertisements or access to certain infrastructures. Um, and so that will be more difficult. And this is where I suspect we're going to see tensions between regulators and blockchain communities. And and uh, again, I, I hope for the best and I will be very active in the space and I know you will be as well uh, toward you know trying to, to create a common ground for uh, blockchain communities and antitrust uh, enforcers and, and communities. Um, but so to, to, to be very specific and answer your question very clearly, this was more of a wish, uh, than, uh, something that I, that I know will happen for a fact. Um, so yes, all I can say, I suspect. Yeah, it's a magnificent and important book. And I think everyone should definitely, um, read this in order to, I mean, to, to, to get, I mean, what I got out of it was this. Um, just fundamental reframing of what the issues and debates are, like in the sense of going from um, a view of, of the role of competition policy or antitrust policy is to be adversarial against large firms and just to try and constrain their power in, 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 a, in a market context. And what you just you know, absolutely persuasively, the case you made in, in the book, um, and, then, and thereby setting out an entire sort of new framework for what competition policy or antitrust policy um, antitrust law is trying to do is to just to make very clear the argument that these things are trying to do the same thing. They're both trying to advance um, competitive frameworks for people to come together and cooperate to create value. Um, there's no discussion of exploitation and power in that in that formulation, and that's what's different here. And this, uh, this and I think that was the sort of quite sort of deep and profound insight that I got from the book was just that a lot of the sort of industrial era. Um, firms and markets and and, and, you know, and monopoly exploitation framing of the role of, of what um, antitrust law is, is trying to do actually just might be a fundamental misunderstanding of what the issues even are here. So but it, was, it, was, it was a magnificent book and, I, um, and best of all, it's free. Well, yes, I mean, I'm very grateful and thank you very much for the comments. But, you know, I want to react to that because Sometimes when you see policymakers and regulators not involved in the blockchain sphere, 
talking about blockchain, they do have this mindset of a confrontation because indeed, if you talk about big tech companies and antitrust, they are not here to achieve the same goal. One is here for profits, the other one is here for consumers or at least for the competitive process. And I understand why you may want to transplant this mindset to the blockchain ecosystem, but again, this will be a mistake because they are going in the same direction, which is clear when you talk with blockchain regulators. And I've I've worked recently with the European Commission and I was very pleased to see that they were here to try to preserve blockchain and ensure innovation in the space, uh, which was not a given for me coming from the antitrust world in which we see a clear confrontation between policymakers and the agents out there on the market. So this requires us to be binary a bit, I suspect, and to have two different mindsets and, and to be aware that when we talk blockchain and decentralized communities, uh, we should try to preserve those while addressing the issues, of course, but we should do it in a certain way. Yeah, I think my final reflection is um, re- really goes back to, I think, our previous conversation um, with, with two who are actually on this podcast, um, you know, where we were talking about uh, the, the Larry Lessig framework, uh, you know, and that the, um, regulation and technology are, are two ways um, of doing a similar thing, which is, is um, you know, constraining human activity in some way. Um, I think what this book does is advances that, that idea in, in looking at, well, um, regulation and technology can either um, pull in the same direction um, or they can be kind of opposed to each other. And it's a, it's a really great book in stepping out the nuances um, between both of those different paths um, in, in a way that I think is a, a wonderful contribution to the wider law and blockchain um, literature. I, I think th- this is the, the, the most influential book it's going to be since um, uh, Wright and, and DeFilippi's, um, you know, Blockchain and the Law. Um, it's, uh, it, I, 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 honest, I honestly think that. And um, I, I think the, the next thing that I would say is that, um, you know, it's it's a welcome sort of advancement in the antitrust space, who at the moment are um, completely distracted by, um, you know, big tech and um, wh- whether we should be worried about, um, you know, the the democratic power and and and, and different political ends of, of, of those sorts of things and using antitrust for. Uh, for things that it was never really designed to do, and really to relitigate a lot of debates that have, um, uh, you know, gone on for, you know, for, for decades now. Whereas um, I, I just found this this book uh, refreshing. That hey, I can get my antitrust fix, um, but it's it's something that is, you know, it's it's new and exploratory, and is, is actually kind of pushing. The, the boundaries um, of of the discipline, rather than kind of harking back to old debates. So I found it really refreshing in that respect as well. Well, again, I'm, yeah, thank you very much. I mean, there is nothing much I can I can I can say. But going back to the to the Lessig framework, it, indeed, I mean, I make no secret that this framework has been highly influential on me. Um, and what I try to do is to explain and if you do have the pathetical dot theory in mind in which you have an agent and you see that market norms architecture and the law can influence the dot 
what I try to explore in the book is how we could actually combine some of those constraints to influence the dot in a certain way, and also try to explain how the dot is is impacting those constraints. The dot here being blockchain, which is changing the environment in which we evolve and the environments that we use for transactions. So it relates a bit to complexity theory, uh, which is why I was very pleased to see that the Nobel Prize in physics was awarded to <laughs> a, a theorist in the space. Um, but but again, th this is me trying to continue the Lessig tradition of uh, of um, you know those uh, very important uh, frameworks that 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 are very present in my mind. Uh, I think about it on a weekly basis. I know it's weird, but that's the truth. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one. It's been so wonderful to have you on the podcast again, Thibaut, and uh, not coming from the antitrust world, but uh, broadly interested in uh, this conversation. I'm always welcoming conversations on sort of jurisdictional approaches to blockchain legislation um, and would absolutely welcome more of um, your and Aaron's thinking on DAOs and kind of legal principles or analogies to help contribute to the developments in those communities from what I've observed in ethnographic uh, research practices there. So on that note, thank you to our guests, Dr. Thibault Schreppel, Dr. Aaron Lane and Professor Jason Potts. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Mint and Burn. You can check out the show notes and get in touch if you have ideas or feedback at rmitblockchain.io.